Chapter 38 of The Financier by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The situation which confronted Eileen was really a trying one. A girl of less innate courage and determination would have weakened and yielded. For in spite of her various social connections and acquaintances, the people to whom Eileen could run in an emergency of the present kind were not numerous. She could scarcely think of anyone who would be likely to take her in for any lengthy period without question. There were a number of young women of her own age, married and unmarried, who were very friendly to her, but there were few with whom she was really intimate. The only person who stood out in her mind as having any real possibility of refuge for a period was a certain Mary Calligan, better known as Mamie, among her friends, who had attended school with Eileen in former years and was now a teacher in one of the local schools. The Calligan family consisted of Mrs. Catherine Calligan, the mother, a dressmaker by profession and a widow, her husband, a house-mover by trade, having been killed by a falling wall some ten years before, and Mamie, her twenty-three-year-old daughter. They lived in a small two-story brick house in Cherry Street, near 15th. Mrs. Calligan was not a very good dressmaker, not good enough, at least, for the Butler family to patronize in their present exalted state. Eileen went there occasionally for gingham house dresses, underwear, pretty dressing gowns, and alterations on some of her more important clothing, which was made by a very superior modiste in Chestnut Street. She visited the house largely because she had gone to school with Mamie at St. Agatha's when the outlook of the Calligan family was much more promising. Mamie was earning $40 a month as the teacher of a sixth-grade room in one of the nearby public schools, and Mrs. Calligan averaged on the whole about $2 a day, sometimes not so much. The house they occupied was their own, free and clear, and the furniture which it contained suggested the size of their joint income, which was somewhere near $80 a month. Mamie Calligan was not good-looking, not nearly as good-looking as her mother had been before her. Mrs. Calligan was still plump, bright, and cheerful at fifty, with a fund of good humor. Mamie was somewhat duller, mentally and emotionally. She was serious-minded, made so perhaps as much by circumstances as by anything else, for she was not at all vivid and had little sex magnetism. Yet she was kindly, honest, earnest, a good Catholic, and possessed that strangely excessive, ingrowing virtue which shuts so many people off from the world, a sense of duty. To Mamie Calligan, duty, a routine conformity to such theories and precepts as she had heard and worked by since her childhood, was the all-important thing, her principal source of comfort and relief, her props in a queer and uncertain world being her duty to her church, her duty to her school, her duty to her mother, her duty to her friends, etc. Her mother often wished, for Mamie's sake, that she was less dutiful and more charming physically. 
so that the men would like her. In spite of the fact that her mother was a dressmaker, Mamie's clothes never looked smart or attractive. She would have felt out of keeping with herself if they had. Her shoes were rather large and ill-fitting. Her skirt hung in lifeless lines from her hips to her feet, of good material, but seemingly bad design. At the time, the colored jersey, so-called, was just coming into popular wear, and, being close-fitting, looked well on those of good form. Alas for Mamie Calligan! The mode of the time compelled her to wear one, but she had neither the arms nor the chest development which made this garment admirable. Her hat by choice was usually a pancake affair with a long single feather which somehow never seemed to be in exactly the right position either to her hair or her face. At most times she looked a little weary, but she was not physically weary so much as she was bored. Her life held so little of real charm, and Eileen Butler was unquestionably the most significant element of romance in it. Mamie's mother's very pleasant social disposition, the fact that they had a very cleanly, if poor little home, that she could entertain them by playing on their piano, and that Mrs. Calligan took an adoring interest in the work she did for her, made up the sum and substance of the attraction of the Calligan home for Eileen. She went there occasionally as a relief from other things, and because Mamie Calligan had a compatible and very understanding interest in literature. Curiously, the books Eileen liked, she liked. Jane Eyre, Kellum Chillingly, Tricotron, and A Bow of Orange Ribbon. Mamie occasionally recommended to Eileen some latest effusion of this character, and Eileen, finding her judgment good, was constrained to admire her. In this crisis it was to the home of the Calligans that Eileen turned in thought. If her father really was not nice to her, and she had to leave home for a time, she could go to the Calligans. They would receive her and say nothing. They were not sufficiently well known to the other members of the Butler family to have the latter suspect that she had gone there. She might readily disappear into the privacy of Cherry Street and not be seen or heard of for weeks. It is an interesting fact to contemplate that the Calligans, like the various members of the Butler family, never suspected Eileen of the least tendency toward a wayward existence. Hence her flight from her own family, if it ever came, would be laid more to the door of a temperamental pettishness than anything else. On the other hand, in so far as the Butler family as a unit was concerned, it needed Eileen more than she needed it. It needed the light of her countenance to keep it appropriately cheerful, and if she went away, there would be a distinct gulf that would not soon be overcome. Butler Sr., for instance, had seen his little daughter grow into radiantly beautiful womanhood. He had seen her go to school and convent and learn to play the piano to him a great accomplishment. Also he had seen her manner change and become very showy and her knowledge of life broaden, apparently, and become to him at least impressive. Her smart dogmatic views about most things were to him at least well worth listening to. 
she knew more about books and art than Owen or Callum, and her sense of social manners was perfect. When she came to the table, breakfast, luncheon, or dinner, she was to him always a charming object to see. He had produced Eileen. He congratulated himself. He had furnished her the money to be so fine. He would continue to do so. No second-rate upstart of a man should be allowed to ruin her life. He proposed to take care of her always, to leave her so much money in a legally involved way that a failure of a husband could not possibly affect her. "'You're the charming lady this evening, I'm thinking,' was one of his pet remarks. And also, "'My, but we're that fine.' At table, almost invariably, she sat beside him and looked out for him. That was what he wanted. He had put her there beside him at his meals years before, when she was a child. Her mother, too, was inordinately fond of her, and Callum and Owen appropriately brotherly. So Eileen had thus far at least paid back with beauty and interest quite as much as she received, and all the family felt it to be so. When she was away for a day or two, the house seemed glum, the meals less appetizing. When she returned, all were happy and gay again. Eileen understood this clearly enough in a way. Now, when it came to thinking of leaving and shifting for herself, in order to avoid a trip which she did not care to be forced into, her courage was based largely on this keen sense of her own significance to the family. She thought over what her father had said and decided she must act at once. She dressed for the street the next morning, after her father had gone, and decided to step in at the Calligans about noon, when Mamie would be at home for luncheon. Then she would take up the matter casually. If they had no objection, she would go there. She sometimes wondered why Cowperwood did not suggest, in his great stress, that they leave for some parts unknown. But she also felt that he must know best what he could do. His increasing troubles depressed her. Mrs. Calligan was alone when she arrived and was delighted to see her. After exchanging the gossip of the day and not knowing quite how to proceed in connection with the errand which had brought her, she went to the piano and played a melancholy air. "'Sure it's lovely the way you play, Eileen,' observed Mrs. Calligan, who was unduly sentimental herself. "'I love to hear you. I wish you'd come oftener to see us. You're so rarely here nowadays.' "'Oh, I've been so busy,' Mrs. Calligan replied Eileen. "'I've had so much to do this fall. I just couldn't. They wanted me to go to Europe, but I didn't care to. Oh, dear,' she sighed, and in her playing swept off with a movement of sad romantic significance. The door opened, and Mamie came in. Her commonplace face brightened at the sight of Eileen. "'Well, Eileen Butler,' she exclaimed, "'where did you come from? Where have you been keeping yourself so long?' Eileen rose to exchange kisses. "'Oh, I've been very busy, Mamie. I've just been telling your mother. How are you, anyway?' How are you getting along in your work? Mamie recounted at once some school difficulties which were puzzling her, the growing size of classes and the amount of work expected. While Mrs. Calligan was setting the table, 
Mamie went to her room, and Eileen followed her. As she stood before her mirror, arranging her hair, Eileen looked at her meditatively. "'What's the matter with you, Eileen, today?' Mamie asked. "'You look so—' She stopped to give her a second glance. "'How do I look?' asked Eileen. "'Well, as if you were uncertain or troubled about something. I never saw you look that way before. What's the matter?' "'Oh, nothing,' replied Eileen. "'I was just thinking.' She went to one of the windows, which looked into the little yard, meditating on whether she could endure living here for any length of time. The house was so small, the furnishings so very simple. "'There is something the matter with you today, Eileen,' observed Mamie, coming over to her and looking into her face. "'You're not like yourself at all.' "'I've got something on my mind,' replied Eileen, something that's worrying me. I don't know just what to do. That's what's the matter. Well, whatever can it be, commented Mamie. I've never seen you act this way before. Can't you tell me? What is it? No, I don't think I can. Not now, anyhow, Eileen paused. Do you suppose your mother would object, she asked suddenly, if I came here and stayed a little while? I want to get away from home for a time for a certain reason. "'Why, Eileen Butler, how you talk!' exclaimed her friend. "'Object? You know she'd be delighted, and so would I. "'Oh, dear, can you come? But what makes you want to leave home?' "'That's just what I can't tell you. Not now, anyhow. "'Not you so much, but your mother. "'You know I'm afraid of what she'd think,' replied Eileen. "'But you mustn't ask me yet, anyhow. I want to think. "'Oh, dear!' "'But I want to come, if you will let me. "'Will you speak to your mother, or shall I?' "'Why, I will,' said Mamie, "'struck with wonder at this remarkable development. "'But it's silly to do it. "'I know what she'll say before I tell her, "'and so do you. "'You can just bring your things and come. "'That's all.' "'She'd never say anything or ask anything, either, "'and you know that, if you didn't want her to.' Mamie was all agog and aglow at the idea. She wanted the companionship of Eileen so much. Eileen looked at her solemnly and understood well enough why she was so enthusiastic, both she and her mother. Both wanted her presence to brighten their world. "'But neither of you must tell anybody that I'm here, do you hear? I don't want anyone to know, particularly no one of my family.' I've a reason, and a good one, but I can't tell you what it is. Not now, anyhow. You'll promise you'll not tell anyone? Oh, of course, replied Mamie eagerly. But you're not going to run away for good, are you, Eileen? She concluded curiously and gravely. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what I'll do yet. I only know that I want to get away for a while, just now. That's all. She paused while Mamie stood before her, agape. "'Well, of all things,' replied her friend, "'wonders never cease, do they, Eileen? "'But it will be so lovely to have you here. "'Mama will be so pleased. "'Of course we won't tell anybody if you don't want us to. "'Hardly anyone ever comes here, "'and if they do, you needn't see them. "'You could have this big room next to me. "'Oh, wouldn't that be nice? "'I'm perfectly delighted.' "'The young schoolteacher's spirits rose to a decided height. Come on, why not tell Mama right now?'
Eileen hesitated, because even now she was not positive whether she should do this. But finally they went downstairs together, Eileen lingering behind a little as they neared the bottom. Mamie burst in upon her mother with, "'Oh, Mama, isn't it lovely? Eileen's coming to stay with us for a while. She doesn't want anyone to know, and she's coming right away.' Mrs. Calligan, who was holding a sugar bowl in her hand, turned to survey her with a surprised but smiling face. She was immediately curious as to why Eileen should want to come, why leave home. On the other hand, her feeling for Eileen was so deep that she was greatly and joyously intrigued by the idea. And why not? Was not the celebrated Edward Butler's daughter a woman grown, capable of regulating her own affairs, and welcome, of course, as the honored member of so important a family. It was very flattering to the Calligans to think that she would want to come under any circumstances. "'I don't see how your parents can let you go, Eileen, but you're certainly welcome here as long as you want to stay, and that's forever, if you want to.' And Mrs. Calligan beamed on her welcomingly. The idea of Eileen Butler asking to be permitted to come here, and the hearty, comprehending manner in which she said this, and Mamie's enthusiasm, caused Eileen to breathe a sigh of relief. The matter of expense of her presence to the Calligans came into her mind. "'I want to pay you, of course,' she said to Mrs. Calligan, "'if I come.' "'The very idea, Eileen Butler,' exclaimed Mamie, You'll do nothing of the sort. You'll come here and live with me as my guest. No, I won't. If I can't pay, I won't come, replied Eileen. You have to let me do that. She knew that the Calligans could not afford to keep her. Well, we'll not talk about that now, anyhow, replied Mrs. Calligan. You can come when you like and stay as long as you like. Reach me some clean napkins, Mamie. Eileen remained for luncheon and left soon afterwards to keep her suggested appointment with Cowperwood, feeling satisfied that her main problem had been solved. Now her way was clear. She could come here if she wanted to. It was simply a matter of collecting a few necessary things or coming without bringing anything. Perhaps Frank would have something to suggest. In the meantime, Cowperwood made no effort to communicate with Eileen, since the unfortunate discovery of their meeting-place, but had awaited a letter from her, which was not long in coming, and, as usual, it was a long, optimistic, affectionate, and defiant screed, in which she related all that had occurred to her and her present plan of leaving home. This last puzzled and troubled him not a little. Eileen, in the bosom of her family, smart and well cared for, was one thing. Eileen, out in the world, dependent on him, was another. He had never imagined that she would be compelled to leave before he was prepared to take her, and if she did now, it might stir up complications which would be anything but pleasant to contemplate. Still, he was fond of her, very, and would do anything to make her happy. He could support her in a very respectable way even now, if he did not eventually go to prison, and even there he might manage to make some shift for her. It would be so much better, though, if he could persuade her to remain at home 
until he knew exactly what his fate was to be. He never doubted but that some day, whatever happened, within a reasonable length of time, he would be rid of all these complications and well-to-do again, in which case, if he could get a divorce, he wanted to marry Eileen. If not, he would take her with him, anyhow, and from this point of view, it might be just as well if she broke away from her family now. But from the point of view of present complications, the search Butler would make, it might be dangerous. He might even publicly charge him with abduction. He therefore decided to persuade Eileen to stay at home, drop meetings and communications for the time being, and even go abroad. He would be all right until she came back, and so would she. Common sense ought to rule in this case. With all this in mind, he set out to keep the appointment she suggested in her letter, nevertheless feeling it a little dangerous to do so. "'Are you sure,' he asked, after he had listened to her description of the Callaghan homestead, "'that you would like it there? It sounds rather poor to me.' "'Yes, but I like them so much,' replied Eileen. "'And you're sure they won't tell on you?' "'Oh, no, never, never.' "'Very well,' he concluded. "'You know what you're doing. "'I don't want to advise you against your will. "'If I were you, though, "'I'd take your father's advice and go away for a while. "'He'll get over this, then, and I'll still be here. "'I can write you occasionally, and you can write me.' "'The moment Cowperwood said this, Eileen's brow clouded. "'Her love for him was so great "'that there was something like a knife thrust "'in the merest hint of an extended separation. Her frank, here and in trouble, on trial maybe, and she away? Never. What could he mean by suggesting such a thing? Could it be that he didn't care for her as much as she did for him? Did he really love her? She asked herself. Was he going to desert her just when she was going to do the thing which would bring them nearer together? Her eyes clouded, for she was terribly hurt. "'Why, how you talk!' she exclaimed. "'You know I won't leave Philadelphia now. "'You certainly don't expect me to leave you.' Cowperwood saw it all very clearly. He was too shrewd not to. He was immensely fond of her. Good heavens, he thought, he would not hurt her feelings for the world. "'Honey,' he said quickly when he saw her eyes, "'you don't understand. "'I want you to do what you want to do. "'You've planned this out.' in order to be with me. So now you do it. Don't think any more about me or anything I've said. I was merely thinking that it might make matters worse for both of us. But I don't believe it will. You think your father loves you so much that after you're gone he'll change his mind? Very good, go. But we must be very careful, sweet, you and I. Really, we must. This thing is getting serious. If you should go, and your father should charge me with abduction, take the public into his confidence and tell all about this, it would be serious for both of us, as much for you as for me, for I'd be convicted sure then, just on that account, if nothing else. And then what? You'd better not try to see me often for the present, not any oftener than we can possibly help. If we had used common sense and stopped when your father got that letter, this wouldn't have happened. But now that it has happened, 
We must be as wise as we can, don't you see? So think it over and do what you think best, and then write me, and whatever you do will be all right with me. Do you hear? He drew her to him and kissed her. You haven't any money, have you? He concluded wisely. Eileen, deeply moved by all he had just said, was nonetheless convinced, once she had meditated on it a moment, that her course was best. Her father loved her too much. He would not do anything to hurt her publicly, and so he would not attack Cowperwood through her openly. More than likely, as she now explained to Frank, he would plead with her to come back, and he, listening, was compelled to yield. Why argue? She would not leave him anyhow. He went down in his pocket for the first time since he had known Eileen and produced a layer of bills. Here's two hundred dollars, sweet, he said, until I see or hear from you. I'll see that you have whatever you need. And now don't think that I don't love you. You know I do. I'm crazy about you. Eileen protested that she did not need so much, that she did not really need any. She had some at home. But he put that aside. He knew that she must have money. Don't talk, honey, he said. I know what you need. She had been so used to receiving money from her father and mother in comfortable amounts from time to time that she thought nothing of it. Frank loved her so much that it made everything right between them. She softened in her mood, and they discussed the matter of letters, reaching the conclusion that a private messenger would be safest. When finally they parted, Eileen, from being sunk in the depths by his uncertain attitude, was now once more on the heights. She decided that he did love her and went away smiling. She had her Frank to fall back on. She would teach her father. Cowperwood shook his head, following her with his eyes. She represented an additional burden, but give her up? He certainly could not. Tear the veil from this illusion of affection and make her feel so wretched when he cared for her so much? No. There was really nothing for him to do but what he had done. After all, he reflected, it might not work out so badly. Any detective work that Butler might choose to do would prove that she had not run to him. If at any moment it became necessary to bring common sense into play to save the situation from a deadly climax, he could have the butlers secretly informed as to Eileen's whereabouts. That would show that he had little to do with it, and they could try to persuade Eileen to come home again. Good might result. One could not tell. He would deal with the evils as they arose. He drove quickly back to his office, and Eileen returned to her home, determined to put her plan into action. Her father had given her some little time in which to decide. Possibly he would give her longer, but she would not wait. Having always had her wish granted in everything, she could not understand why she was not to have her way this time. It was about five o'clock now. She would wait until all the members of the family were comfortably seated at the dinner table, which would be about seven o'clock, and then slip out. On arriving home, however, she was greeted by an unexpected reason for suspending action. This was the presence of a certain Mr. and Mrs. Steinmetz, the former 
a well-known engineer who drew the plans for many of the works which Butler undertook. It was the day before Thanksgiving, and they were eager to have Eileen and Nora accompany them for a fortnight's stay at their new home in Westchester, a structure concerning the charm of which Eileen had heard much. They were exceedingly agreeable people, comparatively young and surrounded by a coterie of interesting friends. Eileen decided to delay her flight and go. Her father was most cordial. The presence and invitation of the Steinmetzes was as much of a relief to him as it was to Eileen. Westchester, being forty miles from Philadelphia, it was unlikely that Eileen would attempt to meet Cowperwood while there. She wrote Cowperwood of the changed condition and departed, and he breathed a sigh of relief, fancying at the time that this storm had permanently blown over. End of chapter 38